0: Humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Oh my God, I am so excited to welcome you to the very first episode of my weekly podcast humans leading humans so if you work inside a large organization whether that be a company or an ngo or a government and you sometimes feel like you are sinking into a quagmire this is my gift to you so later today i will be talking to my first guest the wonderful lord jim knight a former mp and ex cedo of tes he will share some Watson All stories about stakeholder engagement, the power of persuasion, and what it means to have an empowering leader. He will talk about the first ever in the world crowd sourced speech, selling to roofers from the top of a ladder, and persuading a Catholic cardinal about the merits of sex education. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking to people like Vince Cerf, who is the SVP of Google. Oh, and the chap who invented the internet and the COO of Burning Man. Those are stories you definitely do not want to miss, believe me. But first, I need to explain the why, what and how this podcast will, over the coming months, become your go-to snackable audio fuel kit filled with the tools and inspiration you need to shine as an imaginal leader. You can find out what imaginal leadership means at www.wearebeep.com. So what's our why? I've spent 20 years of my work life supporting leaders in all sorts of big, complex organisations through transformation. And believe you me, it's tough, whether they're leaders in a global financial company or a pharmaceutical company, or if they're in a global strategy consultancy or a tech company, the UN, universities, governments, leaders at all levels in all sorts of organizations face the very same challenges. Believe me on this, and driving change is tough. All of those organizations know that they would be more successful if they are more agile, they are more customer centric, they are more engaged, such fabulous and fabulously overused words. But to get there, And here's the rub. People at all levels must unlearn deeply ingrained assumptions, attitudes, behaviors, and embed new ones. And everyone is so busy. They're also busy being busy. They're fed up of change. They're already struggling to keep up. So the last thing they need is more newfangled stuff. Behavioral science has proved that human beings are hardwired to resist having change done to them. We are programmed at the deepest levels to hold on fiercely to the status quo. But, and this is the key, humans are more open to change when they're in environments based on certain conditions. In my humble opinion, a leader's only job is to create environments in which humans thrive. So I've consolidated 20 years of knowledge into one simple, memorable framework. I call it the CREATE framework. And that helps leaders to stay focused on what good looks like. It gives them a North Star. Unfortunately, knowledge and statistics do not change mindsets and behaviors. We have got acres of knowledge and information and research and strategies. We all know what we should be doing. The big question is, how do we convert that knowledge and ambition into action? Now, I am absolutely a tech new utopian and I am a firm believer that technology holds the key to many of the world's challenges, including making the workplace more human, therefore more successful. But I do not believe that technology is the key. Technology is not a solution. It is only an enabler. The reason I did A master's degree in storytelling instead of an MBA is very clear. Human brains react differently to stories than they do to stats. By hearing other people's stories, we feel the hero's journey. We share good snackable stories in a way that we do not share stats. So that's what this podcast is about i feel genuinely blessed that over 20 years of supporting people power transformation i have met some incredible leaders some incredible people and i'm so lucky to have learned from their passion and their dedication and their braveness so this podcast will be packed with a growing compendium of real warts and all stories from some of the world's most successful and bravest leaders in the world to show how leading like a human works. Every week, I'll ask a senior leader from all sorts of complex organizations to share three, just three warts and all stories of how leading like a human actually works, drives impact using the CREATE framework as an anchor. And I know that you, like me, are busy, we all are. So my challenge to my guests is to share their three stories in just 15 minutes. I hope you enjoy the journey. I know I am. Oh, and From next week onwards, I will include in this podcast three of the stories that most resonated with me from my clubhouse room, Humans Leading Humans. So please do come join us if you think your story could help other leaders to become more, well, imaginable. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, Lord Jim Knight. So, Jim Knight, I am so excited that you're my first interviewee for Humans, Leading Humans. I can't even tell you. This is perfect. Do you want to tell everybody who's listening how we met in the first place?
1: Thank you for asking me to be your first guest. I'm (laughs) equally excited. We first met in the bizarre surroundings of the House of Lords, where I'd just come away from a debate that was instigated by Martha Lane Fox to celebrate anniversary of the world wide web and it felt like everyone wanted to speak and so there was a limit to how long each one of us could speak and i think the time limit was two minutes and so i decided that i was going to not say anything that i prepared to say about the world wide web but the most interesting thing i could do was to just put a call out to my social media to twitter and facebook and so on to ask them what I should say in my two minutes, and I then knitted together all of their various comments and thoughts into a two-minute speech, which was probably the first crowdsourced speech in the House of Lords, uh, which felt a, a really appropriate way to celebrate the anniversary of the World Wide Web.
0: Yeah, I was just completely blown away by it. it. Was you know, and I think this is going to be a theme that runs through this interview. It was brave, and it felt human. So, Jim Knight, one of the things that I found out about you since we met is that you have done bits of lots of different things and they all flow in together to make you who you are. So do you want to explain what you've done, not who you are?
1: I am roughly on my fifth career. Um, So from university, I founded a theatre company and became a, a theater promoter in my twenties. I then decided that really I would be better off uh, in politics, but in order to get there, I ended up working for ten years publishing telephone directories and selling telephone directory advertising, which was interesting. I learned a lot to be fair about dealing with rejection and communicating with all sorts of different people because you know I had to sell advertising from on top of a ladder on roofs to roofers, uh, chasing plumbers down country lanes in solicitors offices, in dentists offices, just selling to anyone and everyone and taking everyone at their own level. And that was really, really good learning. Uh, for then my career in politics, where having been mayor of Froom in Somerset and uh, doing lots of things and really loving the power of local government. Uh, I then was elected as a member of parliament in 2001 I was made a minister by Tony Blair after the 2005 election. I did five years, including three as schools minister, a year as an environment minister and a final year in Gordon Brown's cabinet as employment minister. And then when electoral gravity caught up in 2010, I was made a member of the House of Lords uh, and went into a commercial career, um, principally working for a company called Tez, who are a big They were once known as the Times Education Supplement, but they're a big teacher services company. And now I've just finished at Tez and I am now into a freelance career providing advice and consultancy around technology, education, a little bit of medical. And then I'm also chairing a charity called the Centre for Accelerating Social Technology, which is doing some remarkable work in building the digital capacity of the charitable sector in the UK.
0: Wow. What a journey, what a journey. So when I I sent you over the CREATE framework and said, have a look at this. And what's most important in this podcast for me, there's lots of people talking about the theory of what good work looks like, of what good leadership looks like. I think people have had enough of theory. I think people need to know about real lived experience because driving change is hard. And by hearing other people's stories, I think it's gonna be really helpful for leaders who are struggling, or indeed people who might want to be a leader at some point in their career. So I asked you to think about three stories looking at the CREATE framework. What came to you?
1: Well, certainly I've got stories from my time in government. And then CAST, the Centre for Accelerating Social Technology, uh, I think is a, a really good story in its own right. And then, yes, there are also reflections from my time commercially uh, at TES, which I can also talk about. So, uh, But I fundamentally agree with you that people are interested in the theory. They're interested in the analysis of what's not working around how we do business and how we function as a society. And the pandemic, I think, probably will be a big inflection point, a bit like the Second World War was a big inflection point where lots of things changed thereafter. And and I I hope so. Uh, But people are hungry, not just for the analysis of what was wrong, but they're they're really hungry for what's it going to look like? What does a sustainable future of good business and good work look like and to capture those stories is a really good thing that you're doing do you want me to start with one of those stories
0: I would love you yes so what we're all the other thing that I think is really important for people who are listening and probably for us actually is to move the story from head to heart so while you're telling your stories can you talk about the reality because we always tell the story after we've done something, oh, yeah, well, I was going to do this and this happened and it was terribly successful. Well, that's not really how things work. So if you could talk about how it felt to go through that yeah. process as well, I'd be really grateful.
1: Of course. So I'd start with a survey that the UK Youth Parliament did with young people, which would have been, I guess, in probably 2006, and six, seven, somewhere around there so quite a long time ago, and they wanted to find out about their experience of sex and relationship education in schools. And what they got back was an overwhelming message. They had the biggest response they'd ever had from young people to this survey. And overwhelmingly, they were being told that the quality was really poor and that the concern that they had was that that related then to the high rates of unwanted teenage pregnancy, of the high rates of sexually transmitted uh, infections and so on and they asked to see me I thought well yeah if the youth parliament want to come and see me of course I'll I'll see them and they told me the story and I went to see my boss the secretary of state Ed Balls and said I think we need to do something we need to respond to what the youth parliament is asking which is for compulsory sex and relationship education because at the time It was really random as to whether or not you got any. All the law required was that you were told the biology of reproduction. And that was it. There's nothing about relationships. There's nothing about sexuality. There's nothing about contraception, abortion. There's a whole raft of things that young people were hungry to be told about and not left to home or school to maybe saying something. And Ed, being an empowering leader said, I agree with you, but it's going to be really hard um, because you've got to get the faith groups on side and some of them are going to be really unhappy uh, about their schools having to talk about homosexuality and abortion and contraception. And he said, my advice to you is to co-chair with a member of the youth parliament and the leader of a college or a school, a task force, a group that will bring in all the faith groups and representatives of the faith groups and others, uh, including, again, young people, and work out whether or not you can build consensus to make this happen, and, and then we can do it. And that's what we did. And what was brilliant about his advice was that by putting a young person in the chair and bringing some other young people into the room, It kept everybody else honest because it meant that the voice that had started this conversation, the young people themselves and their lived experience of inadequate education in this particular sphere was being heard consistently. And and, and we were being challenged consistently and and the doubters were being challenged by those young people. And that created the energy and the momentum to make something happen. And in the end, We did get consensus. I I did manage with them to negotiate with some of those faith groups that were reluctant that we should have compulsory sexual relationship education. And uh, whilst that particular attempt was stalled by the 2010 election, that is now something that is happening and coming into schools uh, this September, and that's really exciting.
0: So some of the leaders who are listening to this might think, Oh, I can switch off now because that's about politics stuff. And we were talking earlier about the fact that actually that experience is absolutely, pivotally important to any leader who happens to be leading from any sector.
1: I mean, to to pick an example, if I was running, let's say a high street bank, I mean, even now, I think Santander announced that they were closing another bunch of physical branches. So if I, if I was running a high street bank and I was thinking about the need to close some of those branches, to try and move more people online, to lower the transaction costs, ease the flows of, of doing all of that, I could just make that decision and just get all of my people to implement it and make it work. But we know from the experience of banks doing that, that they get big Initial uptake, but actually getting the adoption all along the adoption curve is really hard. It's really slow, and my cha- challenge to anyone in those leadership positions in for, in that example would be: How much time did you spend in the bank branches observing your customers, not your staff, observing your customers and what they, were, how they were using the branches, and talking to them? And finding people just like them that you know so that you could understand their fears of the technology, how you were going to replace what they wanted the branches for, and really get inside the user experience so that those that would be the most reluctant to switch over and could in the end cause you the most problem, if you could solve the problems for them, the, everything else would be a dream. And it's, you know, in that case, it's not about the technology as much as it's about the behavioral mindset.
0: Yeah, and it's never about the technology. It's one of the things that I always say, technology is not a solution, it's only an enabler. So if you're not aware of what that person wants to do, the technology is completely wasted. So the question that might be pinging to front of mind to some of the people who are listening to this story might say, well, yeah, but how did you persuade? As an example, the Catholic church, Sex education, yeah, Yeah. how on earth did you persuade somebody to do that because there isn't one person who's listening to this who isn't thinking, I'm not going to implement that change because I'll never be able to persuade the person that I need to persuade, it's too complex.
1: Yeah, and I did have an awkward phone call with Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor in the middle of all of that, um, which I got the impression he wasn't that keen on having the call, but he felt he ought to, and... I had to try and land him and his support because I'd known from a previous episode to do with faith admissions when Alan Johnson was Secretary of State, how dangerous it is to have Catholic priests preaching against you on a Sunday and how many MPs then will come and give you a really hard time about the political bomb that you've dropped that's alienated all their Catholic voters. So I had to get the Cardinal on side and yeah we had a slightly awkward stilted conversation, but in the end, I was able to find in the current Cardinal, Vincent Nichols, who at the time had a responsibility for the Catholic Education Service, an ally as someone who understood only too well that if young people in Catholic schools didn't understand and have just the knowledge about how contraception and abortion and sexuality what they were and then they didn't have the context for the church's teaching and they were also highly vulnerable because it's not like Catholic schools would have been immune from sexually transmitted infections or unwanted pregnancy. And, you know, we know that. So he got it and he became a really important ally. And I, that would be another bit of advice, I guess, Cats would be, I say this to school leaders when they're thinking about how to work with parents. I'd say, how much time do you spend in the playground at drop off and pick up time, observing who the influential parents are at the school gate that the others are wanting to come and talk to. And, you know, find those allies for change, or they might not be allies, but they're the influencers and get them in the right place. And then the change will happen for you.
0: 100%, 100%. And it's exactly, obviously, that's exactly what Beep is about. If you don't find the change yeah. agents, if you don't bring the change agents together to actually be part of that program of change, you're never gonna win. Okay, brilliant first story. Um, I suppose the question would be, what made you so brave? I mean, that's a big deal. What made you go, I know this is gonna be complex, but I'm gonna do it anyway, because that's not necessarily the way that many politicians would work.
1: You have to feel secure and trusted enough to be brave. And I was lucky in that context that we'd recently moved from Tony's leadership at number 10 to Gordon's. And what that meant was the government effectively moved from being pretty bipolar, where in order to get anything done as a department, you had to get sign off from both number 10 and number 11, from both Tony and Gordon. And that made it slightly bipolar and dysfunctional. There were strengths to it, but there were big weaknesses to ambition. When Gordon took over, it became a more focused government. And I was working for Ed Balls, who was highly trusted by Gordon. And Ed trusted me. And so I had a sense of anything is possible. And if some young people come into my office and tell me that we needed to do this thing, and I agree that actually it's really significant and important that we do, then we could do it. We just had to find the right process to get rid of the barriers. And, and we did. And it was, it was great. It was very exciting. Yeah, you know, The only time I ever got a standing ovation in a speech that I ever made was a speech to members of the Subject Association for Personal, Social and Health Education when I announced that we were going to implement compulsory sex and relationship education. And in the middle of my speech, they all stood up. Uh, and cheered, and um, it was a it was a beautiful moment for me
0: that's the thing if you hadn't have gone through that process if you hadn't have had a leader who trusted you to get on with it who gave you the autonomy um you would have never got to the place where you actually had that moment and i've been there as well where you think my god we're never going to get there it's really hard and then you are and you're like oh i wouldn't change that yeah story number one was awesome (laughs) story number two (laughs)
1: Well, I would go to the present day for number two, which is what we're doing at CAST, led by the wonderful Dan Such. And there, I mean, we're only five years old as an organisation. And, you know, I was there at the beginning, uh, at the time, chairing the Normanet Trust. And we decided to grant aid this new thing um, because we could see a gap in the charitable sector where there was very little digital activity and there was great potential for some important change, yes, some efficiency, but it's the digital mindset that we were most interested in, in the leaders of the charitable sector. And by that, I mean a mindset which gets much closer to the user journey, to the user experience and tries to create a beautiful frictionless experience. And that felt like a great prize, and there was no one really doing it. So we started CAST. And what's happened in five years is it's now grown to be a multi-million pound enterprise, largely channeling government and, and money from philanthropy, but also building capacity in the sector through developing people, and creating community. And that's the, that's the, you know, if, if I had a, an addition to your create framework um, under C at the beginning, I would add community because if you, in any organization or any networked organization, if you're creating community, you're creating reciprocal trust. And that is one of your words under T. And that's hugely powerful because that's a creative energy that allows you to drive change because you've created reciprocity and and trust within your community of people, and that allows us kind of anything to happen. And so what CAST is doing is yeah, you know, where there isn't capacity, it will will fill the gap. But in filling the gap, it is trying to create the capacity so CAST can then walk away and go and fill a gap somewhere else. And uh, it's just doing a stunning job. And during the pandemic, when the whole sector suddenly realized it had to go on a journey very quickly to go digital. CAST was there, happily with government wanting to spend a lot of money very quickly uh, to help the sector go on that journey. And we were there as the catalyst. We started something called Catalyst in order to be able to do that. And a huge again, hugely rewarding and exciting, but driven by a handful of people, creating community, essentially. That was the power. It wasn't the money. It was the people
0: which of course is what drives everyone it's that sense of it is as you say it's about relate and that's the other thing that you're saying i should add to the create framework is relationships yeah and it's it's interesting that you're saying that yes charities are renowned for being somewhat lower down the, the maturity the digital maturity map than say corporates But from my understanding, quite often when you talk to people inside large organizations, they talk a lot about digital, they talk a lot about digital behaviors, they talk a lot about agility, but how do you embed the mindsets and the behavior shift? And that's a whole different thing. And that can only happen when you've got trust, real relationships, um, autonomy, all of the things you've just talked about.
1: I mean, I think we've just lived through a moment where people have been forced to change and where that's gone really well. It's because you've got those ingredients. You've got that sense of trust and people you can lean on. You know, you know, you're outside your comfort zone, but you know, you're in a trusted environment where there's a virtual hug around every corner. If you are going outside your comfort zone and you feel really exposed and highly accountable and no one is watching your back and, and no one's there to just say, hang on, have you thought about that? And just calling out when you're about to make a stupid mistake, uh, then, then it's been a very, very difficult time for those people.
0: Yeah, and, and I think you know it's, easy, it's worth remembering that humans are tribal and therefore you need to be a tribe. You need to know if anything goes wrong, you're going to watch each other's backs because it's good for the good of all, right? One more story left. We were trying to see to the format. 15 minutes wasn't enough. This is what we learned. Everything (laughs) can be better. Always.
1: (laughs) The other one, I was going to talk about a wonderful program called Home Access, which we did in government, which we got half a million kids online by working together with industry and with government and with school leaders. But actually, I think I'll go to something which is perhaps partially successful, which is what I was doing at Tez, where we were managing our resources platform, because that is in a commercial setting. And it's one where Tez Resources is, and it's got 13.5 million registered users uh, who are mostly teachers. It has well over a million downloads of user-generated content every day. It's, It's sort of successful and in in terms of a a number of different metrics. And it was one where previous owners of the company really wanted to monetize that and build a marketplace for it. And, And that worked insofar as it now covers its own costs, but it didn't work in terms of generating lots and lots of profit and revenue. And I think part of that problem was it was imposing a business model on a community of teachers that they weren't really ready for, possibly never would be ready for, because you know, this was a commun- a large community of teachers, a huge community of teachers, who were used to sharing stuff for nothing. And suddenly we said to teachers, you know, some of whom were complaining to us that they weren't allowed to charge and that they were you know, putting effort in and why shouldn't they be able to charge? So we said, yeah, if you want to charge, you can charge. And then the impression was had that? That's what we wanted because we wanted to make money. And there was truth in that impression because, in the in the end, the algorithm was tweaked so that the stuff that people saw was the paid content, even though there was still the vast majority of the content was free. But we were being driven by commercial considerations. We weren't being driven by the user consideration enough. And you know, when I took over managing it, we we reset that, and we've shifted the algorithm now so that it's a much more balanced and, and that, you know, remarkably, the search is now designed to give people what they're looking for rather than what we want them to find. And it's more, more successful. It sounds obvious, but we had a community that we weren't trusting with our motivation. We had a community that we were trying to move to where we wanted them to be commercially. And And I think it's important to celebrate your failures as well as your successes. And so I would say these principles are worth using to reflect back on what hasn't worked as well as what has worked. And so that's why I would end with that story, which is, you know, teachers, I think it's the greatest profession in the world, what they're trying to do and the struggles they've been through in the last year. And we should have been much more in their mindset. And I think Tez is now back in the right place with resources in terms of that. Uh, But it was a bit of a journey.
0: Okay, thank you so much. That's just been, it's been such a a lot in a very short amount of time. (laughs) Um, So if there was one, it's really interesting what you were just saying about Tez. So do you think if you'd have followed the beatway, if you'd have found the influencers, co-created with them, moved forward with them from scratch, do you think you would have managed to move things forward quicker and better?
1: Yes. I think that we could have then, instead of saying, okay, we've got loads of resources, how can we monetize them? We could have said, we've got a great community thanks to resources. How can we monetize the community? And then we would have worked out by engaging properly with teachers and with the change makers within the teacher community, where their pain points were and solving those problems for them. And, and that's how we'd, we'd have monetized and, and we could have done really well at that. We were in the perfect position to do that.
0: And that's the easiest mistake to make, isn't it? Forget that it's all about them. It's not about us. Start there. Okay. So the last thing before we leave, I've got to thank you. This has been so much fun. Not surprising. (laughs) It's always Um, fun. So much fun. Um, so what should we call it? What should we, what's the key takeaway for anybody who's about to listen to this, which then I'll call this particular episode of humans leading humans?
1: I think it, in my head it's about creating communities of trust.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. I'll see you again soon. <laughs> Now I fiercely believe that everything can be better, always. So I'm always open to suggestions for improvement. So what could I do better? Who do you think should join my list of imaginal guests? If you've got any suggestions or comments or a story of course that I can include in the stories from Clubhouse chapter of next week's episode, please, Come and say hi to me at my Humans Leading Humans room, which is every Monday at three o'clock GMT. So that's eight o'clock for those of you in the Valley area and lunchtime Eastern time. I really, really hope to meet you there. So put it in your calendar. Next week, I will be talking to Carol Lazel, who is a Senior Director of Customer Experience at Salesforce. But most importantly, she's an amazing woman who is most definitely an imaginal leader. I, for one, cannot wait to find out which three snackable stories she chooses to tell. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society and PS if you're a senior marketing leader and you're not already a member, you should totally become part of that tribe. And a massive thanks to Super for the magical sting of stings. Thank you so much for joining me. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human and see you next week.